Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community. A number of founding teams that have met in there. A number of nonprofits that have been established a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Marcus Lehman, CEO and co-founder at CalWave which is harnessing the immense power of the ocean as a renewable energy source. Also, you might notice that I'm not Jason. This is Cody Sims, Jason's partner at MCJ. I did today's interview with Marcus at CalWave, and you'll hear me take on episodes here and there going forward. Like many people, I am in awe of the ocean. I could watch waves for hours. And yet, ocean power to date has not been a considerable part of the energy mix. If you think about the strongest natural forces at play around us, the sun, the wind, and the ocean, along with gravity, are what come to mind. So I was curious to learn more from Marcus about why humans haven't been able to harness wave power with the same degree of success as solar and wind, and how he's planning to change that with CalWave. We have a great discussion about the different ways water is used to generate power, what key innovations CalWave has discovered in order to potentially unlock wave power, how wave power and offshore wind power can be combined in the future, and CalWave's roadmap for getting to market. I learned a ton and hope you will as well. Marcus, welcome to the show. Hey, Cody, you know, thanks for having me. Well, hey, I am, I'm super excited and interested to learn about CalWave. You know, I think I can't speak for everyone, but boy, I feel like I can speak for just about everyone when I say that people love the ocean and are, you know, amazed by it. And it's this sort of fascinating thing that makes the earth what it is. And so, but we haven't ever really harnessed it for energy in a major way, even though obviously when you visit the coastline, you can see the incredible power of the ocean. So I'm excited to learn more about CalWave, and I'd maybe love to start by understanding what enthralled you about the ocean. How did, how did this become a problem that you wanted to focus on? That's a good question. A lot of coincidence that came together. 
maybe to your initial point, yeah, there's a reason why we're called the blue planet. So I think 80% of the world's surface is actually the ocean. And that's where all that energy comes from. That wind generates friction on the water and that generates a lot of waves. And these are really the waves that people surf on. We often get mixed up with tidal energy, which is more moon driven. And you really need a bay like here, the San Francisco Bay, and you have a lot of water coming under the Golden Gate and going out. And so that is very localized, whereas wave power is really distributed all along the coastlines, U.S., West Coast, East Coast, and yet it's a really great and dense source. And so my personal journey was a little over, yeah, several coincidences coming together. I started working on renewables back in high school. I was never really the academic type, but I needed to write a final thesis. And I just picked up the first topic that said, build something. And that happened to be a solar race car. And then, yeah, really learned about renewables and, and the initial solar feed and tariffs in Europe that really helped to, to start the early manufacturing boom there in the early 2000s. And then saw that this is a really big problem I want to work on and help, you know, like past generations of engineers have designed the, the combustion engines that now led us to the dire situation we're in. So I felt like this is really now our duty to clean that up, essentially, and then started working on renewables, you know, considered fusion, say, oh, do mechanical engineering, then you can you can help on renewables as well as fusion or other technologies. And then really just for my final thesis, got in touch with a professor here in Berkeley. I did a double degree in technology management that brought me to Berkeley from Munich, where I grew up initially. And yeah, a lot of people always say, oh, there's not a lot of oceans there. There's actually a standing wave in Munich. So I, I used to surf on that river wave and then yeah, I've been to France a couple of times. So personally, you know, I had some first experience with the power of waves. And then really just while I was waiting for my thesis and, you know, I emailed several professors and, and Professor Alam was new to Berkeley and then he just um, invited me. And while I was waiting for my visa and everything, I just happened to read, I was on vacation in Italy and just read the MIT Technology Review, personal interest. And I read about this new concept that a professor <laughs> proposed with, you know, like completely new approach of extracting wave energy. And I knew we don't have a design yet. And then just finished the article and said, oh, this is Professor Alam. That's actually the, the professor I'm writing my thesis with. And so kind of that's how I randomly found the concept. And he initially assigned me a pretty theoretical topic. So similar to <laughs> where I started in high school. And then just, you know, in nights and weekends, it was actually exactly Thanksgiving 2012. We just did a rapid prototyping and said, hey, let's just see how far we can get in a half day free time, essentially not wasting time on the official research and just build a first prototype with stuff we found and threw it in the tank in, in Berkeley. And that was really how we got started. And we showed it to Professor Alam and then he got really excited that we actually got a, a working prototype and, and then, then put some initial seed funding in. Um, and yeah, for the second half of my thesis then worked on the technology. And that's then what led to the first patent that UC Berkeley filed back in 2013. Oh, amazing. And we'll get to the sort of the story post there, because I know you've you've had a lot of success going through some programs like Cyclotron Road and Activate and have received quite a bit of government money for building out the technology that you're pursuing, which we'll touch on. But it's always, always fun to hear the origin story. And I relate to surfing. I love to surf. I'm not very good at it. So I personally have also felt the power of waves when I have wiped out hard on my surfboard. And, you know, if you think about it, when you think about the different forms of potential 
renewable energy, right? You've got obviously solar and wind and and water, and you know water can be broken down into a number of different use cases. And I guess I'd love, you know, I think we all think about solar and wind all the time, you know, huge forces of earth that are, or of the universe around us that are helping us create energy. But water is something that I think we don't think about all that much. And, you know, hydroelectric today makes up a decent chunk of the energy mix, depending on where you are in the world. But other technologies, whether it's tidal generation or wave power, I feel like are discussed less. So maybe before we dive straight into CalWave and your specific technology, just give us a tour about water as an energy generation source and the different methods that are out there today. Well, certainly there's a reason why within the Department of Energy, there's the Water Power Technology Office. And yeah, we're referring to big hydro. There's also small hydro, which is under development. Um, More and more um, lower head hydro is being used with new technologies. And then pumped hydro is really super critical. I mean, as of now, this is the only seasonal or long-term efficient storage technology we have. And hydro turbines in general, just from an engineering perspective, are the most advanced piece of technology you would find. There is no other... You know, it looks very simple, turbine generator, but there is no other technology where more hours of engineering went into than hydro turbines. So people have been on this for a long time. And, and, they're and all the different. basic technology there is just you have water coming through at pressure that turns the turbines and the friction generates electricity at the basest of levels. Is that correct? Yeah, yes and no, without going too much into theory, there are actually three different types of hydro turbines. There are ones with low flow, high head, so coming from high mountains, and they actually are impulse turbines. So they spray them out of a hose and then they just run a a propeller kind of, so impulse turbines. And then there are pressure-based ones. So then if we go to lower head, higher flow, your river that has a lot of water, these are usually Kaplan turbines and Yeah, so they are different design. They use the pressure and not the impulse. So that's just from the hydro perspective. And then for low head hydro, there are a lot of innovations around more the civil engineering and um, environmental impact and fish passing. So you really have to see the full system and the full ecosystem there as well. And then going on in hydro, pumped hydro, then there's marine energy. So marine is also part under the water power technology office from the Department of Energy. And then within marine, there are all different types. Yeah, we touched on tidal energy, wave energy. Then there's ocean thermal, so using the heat differences. There's saline gradient, so using different salt differences. It's kind of a rare one where a river hits an ocean and you have low or no salt and a lot of salt concentration. So you can use that. And then I think sometimes offshore wind is added. And then there are ocean currents. So ocean current being a little different than tidal. People know, you know, the Alaska current that brings a lot of cold water here into the Bay Area, for example. And they just run in one direction all the time compared to tidal, where the direction changes, you know, every tidal cycle. And tidal has power plants that are out there in the world today that are generating, you know, dozens of megawatts of power, I believe. Does it not? That's correct. Yeah, tidal energy is a little ahead of us in terms of technology readiness level or to market And yeah, there are several turbines operational in Scotland and I think Japan recently, they also installed the ocean current turbine and technologically they are really very similar to a wind turbine underwater. So you have a, or like a river, you can just imagine a river in the ocean that flows in one direction and then you put a similar technology, blades and turbines and they generate rotation. So yeah, they're they're a little ahead of us and are currently really ramping up with project financing and, and larger projects. 
Well, great. And and maybe let's talk about how how wave power in particular fits into the renewables mix. So, you know, today I think obviously wind and solar dominate the renewables market. And I think I, I saw a stat somewhere that, you know, at peak wind and solar can get us to somewhere around what, 60 to 70% of our energy needs. And so there's a gap, right? And I think your hypothesis here is that wave power can help not replace wind or solar, but complement them and fill the gap. Is that correct? And maybe maybe unpack that a little bit more for us. No, you're exactly spot on. Yeah, I think some studies found yeah with wind and solar, we can get to 60%. A good indicator are always islands or microgrids. They are kind of a glimpse into the future. I think Hawaii is a, is a good example. And there are good studies from the Rocky Mountain Institute or Hawaii as a state in general. And yeah, they found that the cost of overbuilding storage just becomes, you know, uneconomical and, and you want to diversify there are also other reasons to diversify, as we've seen in Texas or, you know, with the energy crisis in Ukraine. You want to be able to access as many different sources as possible. That just builds up a, a stronger, more resilient grid if you have different sources. If one is down for whatever reason, then you have alternatives. And that really makes a more reliant system with redundancy. And so wave power has three main advantages. It's more energy dense. So we're about, you know... 30 to 60 times denser than wind and solar. So an average coastline has about 30 to 60 kilowatts per meter compared to, you know, one square meter of solar is about one kilowatt in California (laughs) compared to other locations. And then next to that, yeah, it's really delivered right to our front doors. So in the U.S., half of the population lives within 50 miles of the coastline. And overall, we're seeing a trend towards migration towards the coastlines for you know economic reasons and and shipping and industry is usually along the coastlines and so the transmission line problem is really addressed there that you know we essentially get a very dense concentrated form of renewable energy delivered right where the population lives so the cost of additional transmission lines to bring all the renewables in is going to be significantly lower as if we have to produce it in the center of the country and send it in what form or shape or the other it's always going to be less efficient even if you convert it to hydrogen and, and pump it there will always be losses and and you know pumping takes power and so on yeah, so that's another big advantage. And then, yeah, as you pointed out, the production profile is really beneficial. So we can produce at night, winter times. And what we often hear is that the winter nights in Europe, where sometimes the, the grid is already more penetrated by solar and wind, and then they have these like one or two weeks a year where there's just no wind and solar available. And that's just a big nightmare to be able to fill that with renewable and storage. People are working on seasonal long-term storage, but, you know, from economic perspective, total system cost, is it going to be the optimum system if I use my storage battery only once a year and it doesn't generate revenue all other times? Yeah, that's, of course, the, the market has to figure that out. How do you view, you know, and I think you mentioned comparing the notion of wave power with tidal, like thinking about just within the the notion of ocean-powered energy potential. Tidal requires sort of local phenomenon like a narrow strait that water is rushing in and out of at a fast speed. Is that correct? Whereas wave power presumably could be deployed up and down any coastline. I presume that means that the challenge is 
harnessing the fact that you are completely at the whim of the elements because you're out in the middle of the ocean, not moored to anything. Is that is that correct? Is that the big challenge with wave power and why it hasn't been deployed to date? Yeah, so you're correct. Um, the power is available along the coastlines. The Department of Energy did a resource assessment and found from, you know, 60% of U.S. electricity demand could be provided by ocean power. And about half or 60% of that is wave power. So that majority of the renewable resource in, you know, what's left for hydro, river hydro and marine, the majority, 60% is really wave power. So in summary, about 30% of U.S. electricity demand could be met with wave power. And so the reason why wave power is not as far as wind and solar is for several reasons. One, as you pointed out, it's just a resource where you cannot do trial and error, kind of, you know, with wind and solar, people just built turbines in the beginning, put it in their backyards. You could do really cheap testing. You can do testing in controlled environments. In our case, we need, you know, ocean-sized waves. They're sometimes 100 to 160 meter long, and there's just no test environment where you can generate that size of waves and turn it on and off. And so what really the industry needed is a level of engineering that is similar to what the oil and gas companies have been able to do with oil platforms. You know, and people intuitively always say, oh yeah, the ocean is a harsh environment and destroys everything. But, you know, people have found solutions that work there for 60 years and longer, very safe and reliable with, you know, oil platforms now with offshore wind and other permanent structures there. And so it just takes that level of focused engineering and, you know, a, a certain minimum amount of capital. I think the earlier generations of wave developers, they often fell into the pitfall that they tried to, you know, the, the utilities told them, hey, we want to see something in the field, show us that it works. And then they had a couple of hundred case and they tried to build something on the cheap and in a rush. And then, of course, it doesn't work. You know, you need that minimum amount of capital. So that is one. And the second is really we were lacking a design that is capable of, you know, meeting the same criteria as our modern wind turbine. So from a really high level perspective, if we look at a wind turbine from a product perspective, and what it does is it produces electricity really efficient most of the time. And then sometimes when the wind gets too strong, it is able to shut down, so become invisible to storms. And that really led to an economical design. It's really interesting. I once attended a conference with kind of one of the pioneers of wind, Buck Treasure from NREL, and he kind of told the stories of the early days of wind. And so I, I couldn't believe that is actually the case. But the initial shutdown mechanisms for wind turbines was that the blades just fly out of the turbine. So if they spin too fast, so farmers had their, their micro wind turbines or initial kilowatt level um, turbines. So if the wind got too fast, the blades just, the friction couldn't hold it anymore and the blades would fly out. And after the storm, they just went there and plucked the blades back in. So that was kind of the early shutdown mechanisms for wind turbines. And then, yeah, we developed a pitch and yaw control and now wind turbines are really reliable, autonomous. And so both of these features together were really lacking for wave power. And the, the challenge here is that it's not intuitive that if you're on the surface, you're really exposed to all the different extreme conditions. It's more intuitive to be there because you can just go with a ship and look at things and fix things and so on. But what we found is that you have to be able to become invisible to storms. And so waves are a little different than your wind turbine or your hydro turbine where the the particles just go in one direction all the time and then you slow them down. In our case, 
the resource is actually circles. So the, the wave particles, they go in circles and we just slow that motion down essentially. So from a resource perspective, from an engineering perspective, it's a very different set of requirements and challenges. And yeah, I think there, um, what we found is operating submerged really allows us to get the high energy concentration where most of the energy is on the surface, but at the same time, we can also become invisible. So it's it's really closer to a light wave than you know your wind. And so you can compare a wave converter to a window that wants to be absorbent, so dark most of the time. And then sometimes you just want to let all the light through or all the waves go through. And so that was the big challenge that no one had found a solution for exactly that technical problem. Got it. Well, maybe let's go from there and, and just describe, you know, what what CalWave is. You know, we've kind of set the stage on the space and some of the challenges, but maybe talk about talk about your product and, and the innovations that you're building today. CalWave as a company is a marine energy developer. Specifically, we provide technology to harness wave power. And that's really our vision to yeah, become the yeah, leading provider of wave power technology and, and specifically unlock the power of ocean waves to secure a clean energy future. And the technology we've developed is a wave energy converter, as we call it, so similar to an offshore wind turbine capturing ocean waves. So our system operates fully submerged. We're underwater at all times and yeah, produce power there. And as I said, really similar to a wind turbine in terms of grid connection, layout, anchoring, and so on. And we are anchored. You mentioned, yeah, the challenge is to be far out in, in the open ocean. There is a little advantage that we have because we're submerged, so we can be closer to shore. For offshore wind, often the nimbyism of the visual impact of wind turbines is a concern. In our case, we can be much closer to shore because we don't cause any visual impact. You don't see us. We sometimes show that picture before deployment, after deployment, and it's just a wide open ocean um, that <laughs> looks as beautiful as before. How deeply are you deployed? Yeah, that's exactly our secret sauce. So at the moment, the Department of Energy builds a, a megawatt level farm in Oregon called Puckwave. That is a facility where we can really de-risk the technology to become ready for prime time and in serious production, mass production and going forward. And that site is around 60 to 80 meter depth. So, you know, water depth um, to the ground. And then we have found, and that's, you know, in years of engineering optimization, that's really the key understanding that we know where you have to be for what objective. So if we want to produce power, where most of the energy density is, if we want to become invisible, we go deeper. And we have two other mechanisms that allow us to become independent, yeah, transparent, essentially invisible to storm conditions. When you're wanting to be in energy generation mode, the product will actually raise closer to the surface in order to catch the actual surface wave. And then in a big storm or something, you know, you'll do like I try to do on my surfboard, which is like duck under the wave so you don't get totally blown over. Is that true? Correct. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that initial idea from Professor Lamed Berkeley was driving our thinking of being submerged. And what we really found studying the resources that the the forces and the energy density goes down exponentially. So by lowering it a little bit, we can cut the forces into half nearly. So that's a really effective mechanism to become, yeah, to survive storms. And then how do you transmit power back to shore? Are these existing subsea cable infrastructure that you plug into, or is there some other way of diverting power back? Yeah. So the 20 megawatt farm in Oregon is 
pre-permitted and pre-cabled and grid-connected, which is really amazing. It removes all the planning insecurities we have in de-risking the technology and getting all the you know technical checkboxes to get certification and, and then be able to project finance, similar to offshore wind. And so they're laying the cable and you're right, yeah, we need an export cable that goes back to shore, but it's really no different than offshore wind. In offshore wind, there are two kind of major differences. They're like the piled offshore wind we're building on the East Coast in the US at the moment. And then there's floating wind, more like in California, where it gets pretty deep pretty quickly. And so what we found, and, and that's an area we're really actively researching, working in as well with a couple of corporate partners at the moment, now that offshore wind is really taking off in the US and, and globally, is that we can co-locate wind and wave. There have been several studies by a group in Stanford or the Pacific Northwest National Lab. And yeah, they've found that wind and wave happen at different times of the year. So in California, for example, wind peaks in the summer versus wave peaks in the winter. And we often get asked, why is that if waves are wind generated? So for us, the waves that are arriving here on the shores, they're generated far out in the, the Arctic or Southern Hemisphere, and then they just travel without any losses. So these are generated from big winter storms that are not local, versus the wind is really generated from the heat differences, ocean to land, and, and that's where that time difference comes from. And so the big opportunity here is that wind in itself, even offshore wind, has a capacity factor of 40 to 50%, meaning half of the year they don't produce at rated power. And so we have a lot of excess capacity here. I found some yeah, in the US, the current target and planned is about 30 gigawatt of offshore wind. Globally, we already have 60 gigawatt. And yeah, we're seeing the numbers going up quite a lot, like 500 gigawatt by 2030 or so. And so there's a lot of electrical infrastructure that's already in place and not used. And we could fill by co-locating them. We're not planning to mix these farms because for anything offshore, it's a very conservative industry. Everything follows standards and guidelines, but we're just being in proximity and using the same substation. So usually how it works is that a wind farm, they have cables connecting all the wind turbines, and then they collect all that power to one station. And there sometimes it gets converted, um, higher voltage, and then sent back to shore. So we can use that same substation, as they call it. And that's really an enormous cost reduction. It's about 11% of the total project. Of course, it depends on how far out it is, how long the cable is. It could be even higher. And so the, the big benefits is that yeah, paying off all that electrical infrastructure will be significantly reduced. At the same time, the value to the grid, suddenly you have a, a renewable yeah, combined resource wind wave together that is close to base load and fills exactly that big problem we're facing, yeah, trying to grow towards 100% renewables. And today when a new offshore wind project is developed, I presume, the vast majority of time, that same electrical cabling work is part of the project. It's not just putting the turbines out in the ocean. It's actually obviously connecting them to shore as well. So that when you look at the total project finance cost of developing a new offshore wind farm, you're already sinking that all the cabling costs into that project. Is that is that generally correct? Correct. Yeah. In, in general, a project, the phases of developing a project is siting. So BOEM, the Bureau of Ocean Management, they sell leases and they actually just auctioned off a lot of leases. West Coast, um, now also in, in California, I think they're pending. And 
then yeah, the first step is to get all the permits. Um, so a project developer um, can yeah, win these leases, and then they have they can use that ocean land now for their their wind farms. And then they do the environmental studies and get their permits. And then the first thing they would do is lay the cable and the substation. And then yeah, really the last step is to bring in the turbines and bring them online and, and export power to the grid. Super interesting. I mean, you start to think about what are the bundles of renewable energy technologies that will be deployed together? And obviously, you know, with solar, you think of battery storage as a package now for a utility scale infrastructure. And interesting to think about offshore wind plus wave as another sort of bundled package where maybe you don't need as much storage because, like you said, you can avoid the intermittency issue by having these two vehicles that are delivering energy at different times of the year and different times of the day. Interesting to think about that. Like that's a that's sort of, a, to, at least to me, a new perspective to wrap my head around. And the, the problem is really different. You know, in, in California, I think you're not allowed to deploy new solar without storage because you're overheating the grid if you don't really um, level it out. But this is a daily problem. What we're talking here is, you know, seasonal and annual problem, which is, you know, a completely different timescale. And what's been missing a little there is someone that can really assess the total system cost. And that's, you know, in an unregulated market, so you let the market figure it out. Sometimes the market might not find the cheapest solution and then, you know, overbuild things that are not economical. And so we're seeing a lot of studies now in, in some of the more progressive corporates, like Google now really sourcing power by the hour and not just by the capacity. That really shows, you know, that they're thinking forward and understand if you want to optimize for, because there's limited capital, you know, it's great to see more capital going into renewables, but there is still not infinite amount of capital. So we want to use that capital in the most efficient way to get us to full decarbonization as quickly as possible. And so why not use that capital to find the lowest total system cost and overbuilding one resource and then trying to clean it up with storage most likely will not lead to the lowest total system cost, but a diverse portfolio of generation that can really meet the demand on an annual basis is most likely going to be the cheapest total system cost. What do you imagine utility scale looks like for Wave? Do you see there being instances where it's a where CalWave has, you know, CalWave specific farms out there, or do you think it 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 will truly be a mix where it's Wave plus offshore wind bundled together? It's a good question. There are applications where we stand out and we can build our own standalone wave farms. One big advantage for us, as mentioned, is we're completely submerged. So we can go where wind couldn't go. There are some you know, regions where the visual impact is really critical. Let's say an island where tourism is often the majority of their yeah, income. And they're really yeah, concerned with visual impact. They also don't have space. They often have hurricanes. And so our system being submerged, we're hurricane-proof, not causing any visual impact and not taking up land. And so there are some unique features there beyond, of course, a competitive electricity price where we really differentiate and stand out. And we've gotten a lot of positive feedback and interest exactly from, from that group, from eco-resorts that are committed to go 100% renewable. But yeah, they don't really want to impact their, you know, their, their real estate and, and, and their beautiful landscape. So that's an area where a standalone wave farm can really stand out. It's just 
collocating with wind is a low-hanging fruit because the cables are already there, the permits are already there, the developers are there that maintain the wind turbines. And fundamentally, our system is not no different than the wind turbine in terms of supply chain and parts. So anyone that can fix a wind turbine and maintain it can also maintain our system. And we've designed it intentionally only with off-the-shelf parts and things that are available yeah, really from the offshore wind or wind um, supply chain that exactly facilitates the market adoption and, and rapid growth. Well, let's, let's go into that a little bit because as you stated earlier, you know, the ocean is a, you know, destroys everything in its path or something along those lines. I can't remember exactly what you said, but the ocean is a very destructive force. And so I imagine given that one of the big insights you had to have is how you essentially know to go deep when there's a heavy storm coming so that you don't get wrecked by a giant wave. What else have you had to figure out from a maintenance perspective in order to survive being out in the ocean? I I assume there's corrosion issues. I assume there are just issues related to, like you said, making it easy for repairs to happen when you're submerged underwater, et cetera. So I'd love to hear a bit more about the maintenance side of, of your technology. I think the best example I can refer to is our open ocean pilot. So our team really contested in the U.S. Wave Energy Prize back in 2015-16. And then we achieved the highest performing system there out of 92 teams. The Navy did a third-party performance assessment at the very end with the nine most promising systems. And then with these really great results and strong reputation we've built up with the DOE, we won a larger award in 2017 to build an ocean-going system. And so that is now in the field operational in San Diego. We've partnered with UC San Diego Scripps Institution of Oceanography. They invited us to deploy there. And then, yeah, we developed that test site ourselves during the previous years. And with COVID, we got quite delayed, but it's been super exciting now to see the system in the field since last September. So we're now close to 10 months of operating the system. Initially, the DOE set the target to operate for six months, but we had zero downtime, zero intervention. And so we said, yeah, why don't we just let it run and collect more data and more learnings? That's been super exciting. And so to the common challenges you pointed out, corrosion, biofouling, and general access to maintenance, we really addressed these from the very beginning. And that was exactly where the Wave Energy Prize was coming from, that they've seen with the state of the art, we really don't have a scalable solution. And they took us away from that pure performance type of thinking that we're often seeing you know, from a pure academic context. And said, hey, we really have to think about, like, look at this as a product. And that was also my background in systems engineering. And performance is, of course, important, but it's equally important that you can shut it down, that it's affordable, that you can permit it, that it's acceptable with the marine ecosystem, that you can maintain it. So just taking the entire life cycle into account in your initial design. And so that's what we did from a you know clean sheet of paper. We really designed for all these requirements right from the beginning, and no one had done that before so far. And that really led to a system now that, you know, operating submerged were actually less corrosive because there's less oxygen. You know, worst point you can be is on the intersection between water and air that you have splashing, you know, a chain, salt water splashing on your structure. 
overall, the oil and gas and, and the offshore wind industry has really found solutions for corrosion. And they use, you know, very mature paints. There are new paints coming out any other day, nano coatings that prevent biofouling. But then we're using suffocating anodes. So there are also some yeah, ways you can just protect um, steel. And, and people have been doing this for, for many years now. In terms of yeah, marine acceptability, there's a study that's a global nonprofit called Ocean Energy Systems, and they collect all the data of marine energy. They really want to, you know, share learnings, best practices. And part of their work is to yeah, really document the acceptability to marine life. And this is called the State of the Science Report. There's a new version that came out 2020. And here in the U.S., the Pacific Northwest National Lab is really the main body there reporting all the, the findings of projects that have been done in the U.S., and in general, there are like five areas that are of concern. And yeah, as of now, for WAVE specifically, they are all in the green lights. Um, some of them require some monitoring, like, for example, noise. And so in our case, we had uh, PNNL actually independently coming by to San Diego and recording the noise level. And then they had to come a second time because they couldn't hear anything and had to come closer. So that was encouraging. And yeah, overall, we have to be super careful. And it's very important to us to not cause any impact to the marine ecosystem. That's the main reason. You know, it's our prime motivator is to, to protect the environment. And that's why we're working on this. So we're really careful in monitoring the risks there, but they're all manageable and acceptable. That's why we're seeing the industry moving forward. Yeah, I think you had another question. Oh, yeah, maintenance. Yeah, so for maintenance, the beauty of our system is that we really integrated that into the design. So for us, we can do inspection remote. And we've been keeping an eye on the system now for the last 10 months, just with our, you know, our power export cable that is connected to the pier in UC San Diego microgrid there. And yeah, we also get data so we can see exactly what's going on. We have videos on board, but all kinds of sensors on the forces and, and all moving parts and so on. And we have really moved all the moving parts inside the system. So that's that makes it, you know, no fast moving parts are really exposed. And, and that's a critical part. And so with our system, we can float it like a ship. So if you just leave it unmoored, it would be on the surface just like a ship. And so any ship can tow it to a location. Then we connect it to the mooring lines, to the anchors that are pre-deployed, and then we go submerged. And so for maintenance, we just do the same reverse. We bring it to the surface and we can do some level of inspection on site. So if it's, you know, just looking, some visual inspections can be done offshore. But then for an overhaul maintenance, we're currently designing for four to five year cycles. So for a 20, 30 year project, yeah, it's about four to five maintenance cycles. Then we just disconnect it, bring it back to shore. And there, then we can conduct the maintenance. And what we're seeing is quite interesting now with, you know, advent of new technologies, autonomous shipping is really coming, as you might see. And there were several, you know, RPIE funded title projects that is kind of self-propelled. And so it's not completely inconceivable that our systems could just self-disconnect and come back to shore. We have storage on board and adding a propulsion system and autonomous system. So, you know, come near future and the system is fully mature, reliable on the power side. There are a lot of innovations we can adopt um, to lower the cost for maintenance. And there's a good chance that we're actually going to be cheaper than offshore wind because we don't need specialized vessels that, you know, for wind, these are big machines. 
in our case, because it is like a ship, it's much easier to actually disconnect it, bring it back to a harbor, or like I said, it could autonomously just come back by itself and even replace. So with our system, we can do a hot swap. So if we have a farm of, let's say, 100 systems and we can share anchor points, then just the one that needs maintenance gets disconnected and comes back to shore and immediately gets replaced with a new one. So we have no downtime. We can really secure to yeah, produce at the rated power of the cable at all times. And so we have essentially 101 machines and one just gets inspected, maintained and replaces one by one in a scheduled way. So that's really the, the most efficient way we're seeing yeah, bringing the OPEX costs down going forward. And maybe describe for listeners what the actual device looks like. We haven't even talked about that specifically. I know when I first heard of, you know, wave-based power, I didn't really, I couldn't get my head around what the actual form factor of the thing was. And I guess as part of that, the other question I have just on safety is once you describe what it is and people have their head around it, how do you manage boat safety of boats not ramming one of these things if it's, you know, slightly submerged underwater? I think that's an easier question to answer. For our pilot in San Diego, we had to get all permits, and one of them was a Coast Guard permit. So we just have a surface buoy with a notice to mariners. And, you know, if this is a permanently installed farm, like offshore wind, then it will be on the map as well. So boats know that there is a farm. And, yeah, you know, the ocean is, there's a lot of space. So, of course, that's part of marine spatial planning. OM wouldn't give out leases at locations where there is ship traffic. And, you know, with fishing and logistics and, and container ships, they already know, you know, what their routes are and so on. So that, that's all part of the planning process already. And in terms of, sorry, I missed the first yeah, part. Yeah, just what it looks like. Like, describe the device. Yeah, so if you go on our homepage, calwave.energy, you see a video during installation where it's on the surface. So our system is really like a buoy, um, like a ship, essentially floating ship. And then from architecture perspective, it's as close to an electric car as it can be. An electric car has, you know, four wheels, four generators. And by that, it's really stable. It's a dynamic system on a road. And by that, it gives a lot of stability. And yeah, our system exactly follows kind of the same findings. And we have several generators that allow redundancy in production, but also reliability. And then it operates fully submerged. So you can really imagine it like an electric car underwater. And then the waves really push it up and down. And so, as you know, an electric car that goes downhill would produce power. So when you're braking or you're going downhill, slowing down, your electric motors also produce power that recharge your batteries. And that's exactly the same for us that... The waves lift the system and that we can produce power there and then bring it back down. And so it's really that cyclical oscillating motion that then allows us to produce power. You describe it as a buoy. I, I think it looks like a flying saucer, but either one, either <laughs> one, I guess, is good. So we actually had that incident. There was a, a newspaper helicopter in San Diego that they posted a tweet and said, what the hell is this? And people thought <laughs> it's a UFO or something and no one knew exactly what it is. Now I think some some guy flew by with a drone and saw our name and then luckily yeah, it got picked up on, on Twitter and we could clarify. But yeah, you're right. There, there well, you know, some... in the movie Men in Black, it's the National Enquirer that always tells the real truth about what's happening in the world. So, you know, maybe you all are, are, are scooping the future by deploying flying saucers everywhere to power the future future of our coastal areas. <laughs> 
So maybe on that note, talk a bit about what your go-to-market is. I believe you're focused right now, obviously you're doing the trials in San Diego, and then you'll fo- I think you'll you'll focus on the deployment up in Oregon at the PacWave facility, if I'm not mistaken. But from a commercial perspective, I'm assuming you're focusing on more disconnected communities to begin with. Is that correct or not? I'd love to hear kind of how you see the build out happening. Yeah, you're right. There's, I mean, first step is really to de-risk the technology, make it reliable. And yeah, the trial in San Diego was already extremely valuable and also encouraging for us. You know, it's it's somewhat unusual that a system as complex as this, you know, our controls is really the heart of our technology and IP is, is that autonomous controller, similar to a wind turbine that itself decides when to shut down, when to produce. And so all that, you know, complexity and, and mechanical parts working reliable in the first shot is was somewhat surprising. We had expected at least one or two interventions. So that's been super exciting to just, you know, all the, the hard work before. We, we've done a lot of de-risking of our simulation models, of our digital twin of the system that also helps us to optimize it. At the same time, we did a lot of dry testing of the drivetrain in collaboration with Berkeley. And so... Yeah, the next step, we, we just won a large award from DOE in January to build a larger system, a 100 kilowatt unit, and that is intended then to go into Puckwave for two years, really grid connected. And then we can grow there because it's such a great site. They have four cables of five megawatt each. So we can then upgrade it with our megawatt class unit as kind of the next step up because we're no different than a wind turbine. You know, the initial wind turbines were in the two-digit, three-digit kilowatts and now grew to megawatts. And then people thought, oh, six megawatt is the limit of wind that can be reached. And now we're working on 20 megawatt wind turbines. And so from a resource perspective, we're no different that it's scalable. The wider we make it, the more the energy input and the higher the power ratings. And what we've seen in wind is that with larger machines, the costs come down. So people sometimes refer to that as economies of scale. And then next to that, of course, you have mass production, um, economies of industrialization, you know, reducing labor costs, robotic manufacturing, and so on. So both of these phenomena actually bring the costs down, and, and that's why we have so cheap wind power at the moment. That's exactly the the same path we can follow. And then at Puckwave, we can deploy potentially then the megawatt system and even a farm of the megawatt system as said, up to 5 megawatt per cable. The total site is rated at 20 megawatt so that's kind of from a technology de-risking, making the technology ready for yeah, commercialization and, and serious production. At the same time, of course, we're planning to offer yeah, kind of initial commercial projects. And so we have a collaboration with a hotel in French Polynesia that is really interested. There's actually the Olympics 2024 in France and the surfing part of it is in Tahiti. And so they just announced kind of a wave challenge to yeah, co-host and show the potential of this technology for island development economies. And what we found is, you know, these island development states, and these are smaller islands, not like a UK or Japan, they still represent about 11% of global population, and they predominantly rely on imported fossil fuels. So this is often bunker fuel. It's like the worst possible fuel, emissions worse than a coal power plant. And also the the enormous trade deficit of them having to import, you know, all that fuel and not really getting anything out of it, but emissions and power. So that's a great opportunity for these communities to use their own local resource and become energy independent. So that's certainly an avenue. And that's what we're also seeing the 
the electricity prices are really high there. But then in parallel to that, we're also working- Actually, before, with you, before you jump, like just a question on that, which is, you know, we talked earlier about how Wave is likely a complement to the existing renewable mix. But in this case, it sounds like, you know, you're, you're saying in, in, in many developing island nations, it may be more of a leapfrog. I'm wondering why wind and solar haven't been deployed there, but Wave technology would be able to work there. It's a good question. What we're seeing, I referred to that earlier, is really the the visual impact and the land requirement, you know, the scarcity of real estate, and that's often a concern. And yeah, it's certainly in these remote locations, it's not easy to deploy new technology. So it has to have a certain level of maturity and reliability because the cost of operating there is more expensive than, you know, you can ship something by railroad from Michigan, a spare part. And so that is really the, the critical piece of getting it reliable at Pakway first and, and then be able to go to these remote locations. Yeah, one example, we just got accepted to the portfolio of Launch Alaska. It's a program helping companies to set up projects, footprint in Alaska. And we found a community there that also has no wind and solar. So for them, they're completely isolated. And up north, they might have some solar in the summer, but then uh, entire winter, not much there. So that's exactly some of these smaller niche applications that really allow us to produce the first 100 and then first 500 units. So what we found from a cost perspective, once we reach about 500 units, then we become cost competitive with offshore wind. And that's kind of the path we're seeing, identifying the more expensive electricity markets first, and then be able to collocate with wind once we have that production volume that brings the cost at par. That makes sense. And then that's when in parallel to some of these trialing solutions in island nations, you'll also be trying to build out grid scale capacity in places like Oregon and at PackWave. That's correct. Yeah. And second half of your question, in parallel to these, we're also working with several corporates and project developers of offshore wind on feasibility studies educating them on the potential, on what's in the pipeline for technologies, and then, you know, starting with a small initial project and then being able to grow from there. So I think we're getting a lot of interest there at the moment. And I think now with offshore wind growing so rapidly, I saw, I think McKinsey had a study found that offshore wind is really expected to grow to like 80 gigawatts by 2030 and then 600 gigawatts by 2050. So we're expecting enormous growth in offshore wind in the in the coming years. Well, let's talk a little bit about the cost side and just the, the investment opportunity side with wave power. Drawdown indicates that wave power is a, you know, a top 30 technology in terms of its impact on emissions. And I think they said that it could provide somewhere of up to 25% of U.S. electricity by 2050, but would require really substantial investment. The quote in, in Drawdown says it would cost $400 billion to implement wave power up to that capacity with net losses of a trillion dollars. So, you know, I assume that's not just, you know, CalWave, that's looking at all forms of wave technology, including some of the tidal solutions we talked about earlier. But I'm curious, you know, how you have penciled out what it's going to cost to deploy your technology to get to a utility scale improvement. And I'm, I'm assuming also the, the what you were talking about, about blending the investment cost with offshore wind mitigates or blunts the loss side of that equation quite substantially. 
It's a really good question. And, and personally, I'm a, a big fan of Project Drawdown because they really put a name tag on things and quantify the impact potential. And I think the numbers in terms of cost, we always have to be a little careful that where did they get them from? They did not ask us about our cost projections. And, you know, there's a good chance that we're really on the spearhead of the industry. So, and they don't know what's in the pipeline at the moment with new technologies that bring the cost down. So from a first principle perspective, there is no reason why we should not be at the same price or cheaper than offshore wind. It's generators, it's steel, same cable. The difference is really that the resource is significantly more energy dense. So there's a good chance that we're actually cheaper. The IPCC has found that yeah, ocean energy is the lowest form of electricity from a life cycle perspective, exactly because of the energy density. You know, it's water a thousand times denser than air. And so the amount of material, steel and, and equipment you need is significantly lower. So we did a analysis comparing the spatial footprint of an offshore wind farm compared to a wave farm. In our case, we can pack these really densely so we don't have to space them out because wind has these wake effects as well as, you know, anchor cables, anchor chain lying out and so on. In our case, we can pack these in a very dense line along the coastline. So the amount of space we need to get to the same amount of, let's say, 20 megawatts in a mile or so is about 7% compared to an offshore wind farm. So that just gives you a sense on how much less space and material we need. And so that combined with the OPEX being cheaper, that because we don't need helicopters or specialized vessels, any larger tuck can install our system, if, if not even self-installed, if we add propulsion to it. And so, of course, acknowledge that wind and solar are ahead of us in the cost curve because they have that amount of accumulated production and capacity. But yeah, once we get over that initial hum, that kind of, you know, as they call it, value of death in for the first 100, the first 500 units, then, you know, the cost should actually become cheaper than, than there's a good chance that it become cheaper than offshore wind going forward. So there's some progressive countries like Spain and Portugal. They actually have a government mandate. Um, I think in Portugal, it's about 70 megawatts specifically for wave. So comparable to the portfolio standard in the U.S., but specifically calling out, we want a diverse renewable mix. And, you know, they said so much wind, so much offshore wind. They really mapped it out and based on the lowest system cost, as we discussed earlier. And part of that is really to add 70 megawatt of wave. And so they are exactly these kind of yeah, initial markets or countries. And that's what we've seen with solar and wind as well. You know, California and, and Germany had these incentives in the early days that really allowed to bring the cost of solar down, that now we have that production capacity, that, that this is the cheapest form of electricity. And so we're seeing similar yeah, from a demand side incentives. And next to that, we're seeing the the corporates like Google or also the community choice aggregators really sourcing power by the hour and not just by the capacity. And so there will be a market incentive. They call it TRX. So there will be a market incentive for technologies that, you know, as mentioned, winter nights, no one else can produce. So that there will be enormous credit there going forward for technologies that can produce at these times. And I assume, you know, a lot of the cost side of things is on the R&D front, which you know, so there's the the scale out, obviously, which, as you mentioned, is steel and metal and and deployment, which is pretty similar to scaling out offshore wind. But the R and D side is is where I think this technology has been much more nascent relative to wind and obviously offshore drilling, which has been around for decades. So maybe. 
talk us through your journey on the R&D side. You all have, you've been going through sort of the gauntlet of different R&D financers and have seen quite a bit of support. And I'm curious what you're seeing in terms of both appetite for funding R&D here, as well as the journey you've been on that can help other founders who are building new technologies sort of learn from you in terms of the capital mix and support mix that you've gathered for CalWave. Yeah, and you're right. It's an important question. How do we you know, scale these technologies and, and who's taking the biggest financial risk there? And what we're seeing, CalWave is, is a member of the National Hydro Association, and they have a specific subgroup called the Marine Energy Council. So we have our ears in Washington and you know, like the Congress has assigned now about 120 million per year, specifically for marine energy and to the water power technology office. So that's already super exciting. That's an, an enormous increase. The head of our council there always complains that this is still a fraction of what wind and solar gets. And compared to the potential and the stage of the technology, you know, if you see a lot of solar is not produced in the US, but imported but still a lot of funding goes into the technology and the R&D side. So one might ask or question, would the investment dollar in R&D, return on investment, would that actually be higher in a new industry that could develop locally and become then exporter of, you know, some of the, the early finances of wind? It's really interesting. There was a, a study that compared Denmark to the UK and have found that the total amount of money that the UK has invested in wind in the beginning is actually larger than Denmark, but they've only done it in patches. So like one legislation, next legislation, nothing for four years, and then another amount. And so the result is now that Denmark is, you know, one of the leading exporters of wind technology because they had a continuous funding level. And so that's why it's super exciting. And I think actually the U.S. has a big opportunity and chance here to become the leader in that space. In, in Europe, we don't see that much funding going into marine energy and not at that funding level. So the awards we've gotten from DOE they usually come with cost share requirements, similar if you go and, and get an R&D award from the European Union, they usually come with a match funding. And, you know, like to deploy these systems, as I said, with a, there is a minimum amount of capital it just takes to do the, the thorough engineering and planning. And the order, you know, like our pilot program, for example, was a 6 million award from DOE. And in Europe, as an example, they often require 50% match funding that would come down to 3 million from the private sector. And that's a big challenge for small companies that, you know, still in the demonstration stage. And so in the U.S. now, they've we've received these awards at a 20% cost share and, and the latest at 10%. So that's enormous competitive advantage of the U.S. compared to other regions combined with that amount of funding going into the space and now PuckWave. So I think from a pure R&D diffusion, you know, technology development perspective, these three things all coming together are very unique. And I think the U.S. is really well positioned there. So it's a super exciting time to be in this space now here. How much have you raised in total from the DOE and any other non-dilutive sources at this point, roughly? Yeah, order of magnitude, you know, we've gotten four larger. So briefly to our funding journey. The big initial seed investor was really, as you mentioned, Cyclotone Road and Activate. And they came in really early in 2014, 15, 16, when we graduated from the program. And that initial seed funding was super critical. Without Cyclotone Road, we wouldn't be here today in that size and shape. And 
that really allowed us to focus on a commercial product and not a pure research kind of focused endeavor, but still being close enough to Berkeley to benefit from, you know, a research environment. So that was a really unique program. And, and I was in the very first cohort. So extremely lucky and, and grateful for their trust and the amount of, you know, funding they gave us at, at that stage. That's hard to find elsewhere. And then we've, yeah, as mentioned, we won some cash prices from the U.S. Wave Energy Prize. We won a half a million in cash. That was really a award. We did a crowdfunding campaign in the very beginning, a couple of other funding sources. And then, yes, yeah, in 17, we started winning these larger DOE awards. We've won four so far. The latest to build the two-year system for PuckWave Grid Connected is in the order of $8 million. And yeah, with a 10% cost share. So overall, yeah, we've raised some, you know, over four trenches in a seed round to a match fund these DOE awards over the years now. And do you see this being the type of business that becomes venture capital funded? Do you see it moving straight into project finance, a little bit of both? Do you see it going other pathways for growing? And I, I suppose there's the growing the equity structure of the business and there's growing individual projects. I'm just curious how you see fun. I mean, you, you're essentially building a new type of power plant. Right? It's a it's a very different kind of business to fund. And so I'm curious how you see how you see the capital side of the business evolving. You're right. Yeah, just to clarify in terms of business model. We're not planning to become a project developer. We're really planning to become an equipment provider, technology provider service. So really no different business model than the wind OEMs um, that, you know, provide the turbines and then the maintenance contracts and additional performance service contracts and, and, and software, you know, digital services there for improved performance or digital twin that leads to reliability. And so these are all parts of the, the value offered. And in terms of private sector involvement, the project financing will really come from uh, or to the project developers. So they would be more our customers. And yeah, it takes a certain level of technology maturity to be able to project finance. And there are different shapes and flavors of risk acceptability of project financing. You know, some firms explicitly say, oh, we want a project finance the first of its kind. And then the other firms say, oh, yeah, we're actually... Then this firm hands technology over to the next firm that says, oh, yeah, we actually want to finance the first five or first 10 of a kind. And then we have some active conversations with the U.S. Loan Guarantee Office. There's also other offices in the making, Office of Climate Demonstration. So I think the capital stack is really creating a nice kind of ladder there to allow these technologies to diffuse into the market space and then become, you know, similar mature as wind and solar today in terms of venture capital yeah we have the active conversation with the investor community and now with ukraine and you know climate change looking worse than expected with the latest reports and covid i think there were a lot of wake-up calls that we're seeing more and more capital flowing into the space including capital that allows technical risk of course with the caveat that we have to prove the technology in, in the field and, and that that's really a great stage now that we have the system de-risks and validated. And now the technical risk is really more scaling. You know, the fundamental risk of 
does the architecture work at all? Does your control <laughs> work at all or your decision making? So that's all now kind of proven. Our controller, our key trade secret, the digital twin, will stay identical. It's really just building bigger systems and at bigger forces, higher forces. So I think in terms of technical risk, that's already at a really great stage now to accelerate the growth. Well, great. Well, Marcus, what else should I have asked you that I didn't ask? Yeah, we're always looking for <laughs> supporters. We're, we're hiring at the moment. We have a couple of open positions planning to grow um, further as well commercially than in the near future. So yeah, if, if you're interested in the space, get in touch. We're also looking for advisors can start kind of a little more on a part-time or lower basis. You know, if you have interest in the space, want to learn more, please reach out at yeah, marcus at cowwave.energy or just check out our homepage and, and look at the open positions there. Well, hey, I super appreciate you taking the time. You know, this is a, a new one. You're building an, truly a, a totally novel technology here. And I know I've enjoyed learning a ton about it and hopefully folks listening here have as well. So thanks for your time. And certainly we're rooting on you to help harness the power of the ocean for something even more productive than a fun day surfing the waves and help us actually power the future of the grid in a large capacity. Thanks so much yeah, for having us. In, and also thanks so much for your work. I, I've been a big fan, been enjoying your, your work and it's really encouraging and equally important to get the messages out and, and get everyone on board that this is an important and urgent issue to work on. Super. Thanks, Marcus. Bye for now. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.com. Dot co. Note that is dot co, not dot com. Someday we'll get the dot com, but right now, dot co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.